that's one of the things about religion that we have to remember when we're talking about that makes it such a, a hot topic issue is because we're talking about law. Who gets to be God? Who gets to be God's deputies? Who is the most high? Who is the divine authority? It's all about the claim to the most high. The only way that somebody can be higher than us is if we give away our power. Because there's nobody, we're all equal. But we're not equal in our knowledge, so ultimately, I think it does have to be a hierarchy, but it has to be a cooperative hierarchy, like a bee colony. We have to, it's about what our value system is, what we care about. Hello, Hive Mind. Today is November 28th, 2020. You're listening to the Cubby Hole Podcast. I am your host, Douglas Martin. Today we'll do a recap on the barriers to self-realization and further discuss how to identify evil in our midst. On the last show, Brandon began discussing astrotheology to caveat religion as a method of manipulation. And I just wanted to say that astrotheology is critical to understand before going into some of the deeper subject matter. And it is absolutely a prerequisite to understand some of the more advanced subjects that we're dealing with here at the cubbyhole. So that'll be very helpful for us to have that there to reference. And I want people to continue to work with that material and really try to get a handle on it to better understand some of the other subjects that we are discussing. Just keep in mind when you're dealing with the Zodiac, in large, you're dealing with solar doctrine. Main point being, only when we've venerated in annual cycles did we begin to venerate constellations west to east and east to west. In the stellar mythos, we're only dealing with southern circumpolar constellations and northern circumpolar constellations. So this is prior to venerating constellations west to east and east to west. That being said, let's go ahead and get into the subject matter for today. Going to just do a basic recap of the barriers to self-realization, which are ego identification, the left brain prison, the five sense illusion, and institutional belief or institutionalized belief. So starting out with ego identification, we pointed out that basically it's how we begin to identify with the labels or the roles that we play or the experience that we're having in the physical body. We're not making the distinction between the life force in the body and the body itself. The idea that the physical existence is basically all that there is and that man is the highest power in the universe. One of the main pitfalls of ego identification is that the ego sets up as executor of the brain and basically makes self-preservation of the physical body its prime directive. And that's interesting because I've always said that I see government and government systems operating with the same modus operandi, where self-preservation becomes their highest directive. The directive to remain executor, the directive to create the appearance of philanthropy, when in fact it's causing nothing but muddle, extravagance, and scandalous waste. So that means that resources are being exhausted just to create the facade that government could be something benevolent, which it never could be, and has always proven to be the antithesis of anything that is good or could ever be good and decent. So this ego identification, it's about identifying with the roles we play. You know, I am my job or, you know, I am my gender or I am my ethnicity. I am my race. I am my profession or my occupation. And we identify with these roles that we play. 
And the danger, um, you know, ego is necessary because it's the tool that we use to interact with the physical world. So there's no getting rid of the ego. We just have to learn how to not be controlled by ego. And remember, it's the attachment to the physical. You know, the idea of enlightenment does not mean that you become a perfect being and never make mistakes in the physical world. It simply means that you've acquired a knowledge set that helps you understand what has true value in this world and that your behaviors have been altered to demonstrate and put forth effort to preserve those things that you found to have true value. There's a lot of things we can say about the idea of enlightenment. There's a lot of misgivings about what people think it means. One thing I want to say about that is that a lot of people seem to think that becoming aware of government corruption is some level of enlightenment. And it is, you know, it is a level of enlightenment, but it's what I would refer to as merely a jumping off point, which means the spiritual journey, the true spiritual journey and the spiritual purpose cannot be discovered and the journey cannot begin until we break free of the axioms of government and ultimately the axioms of money or anything that creates master-slave relationships in the world. So my point about that is the spiritual journey really can't begin until we break free of the axioms of money and government. So a lot of people, the so-called woke or people that think they're awake, I think are confusing that with waking up to government corruption or government tyranny. What I want to say is that we have to understand that it's a systemic problem. And that we need to know de facto that the system is broken because it never can be moral. It's not in harmony or harmonizing with truth. It's not using science to understand and harmonize with nature. It's trying to use science to control nature as a means to its own end. So without belaboring the point, I just can't put enough emphasis on waking up to government corruption or institutional corruption is only a jumping off point for the spiritual journey. The spiritual journey will not begin until we shed those axioms. So we have to understand so many things to discover what has true value in this world. Now, I've already stated that the amount that people believe in man's law can be a direct metric for how spiritually bereft they actually are. And we've defined spirituality as for the cause of freedom and that freedom is directly related to our true purpose as a species. If we're not endeavoring to protect and preserve freedom, we're not filling our role in nature. And the ego identification, the ego convinces the body that the body should only serve the body rather than serving the life force or the dweller in the body, the higher true self. So we need to keep that in mind. It's part of our personal responsibility to truth. So this ego identification, um, you know, the ego is a tool, and that tool is what allows us to engage the physical world, and it also acts as a protector in, in the sense that it helps us distinguish ourself from other things that exist in the physical world, which ultimately we are connected with. But the ego is, is the part of ourselves that makes the discernment to warn us of impending danger, for instance, like, you know, a tree branch that might be about to fall on our head or a, a big hole up ahead that we might fall into if we're not careful and, and step around it. So while the ego protects it separates us and that's the danger in ego and i'm basically just recapping these barriers to self-realization i suppose we'll continue to flesh these out and bringing them up to help understand where we tend to go awry in our thinking and understanding our true purpose as a species and understanding the importance of freedom and protecting freedom and preserving knowledge for progeny and posterity main point is ego identification. The danger in it is that while the ego protects, it separates. So 
we don't want the we don't want to let the ego or the tool to set up as the master of the being or the executor of the being and we talked about how uh, a left brain imbalance is associated with our complex setting up as the executor of the being and a right brain imbalance the mammalian brain sets up as the executor of the being and that these are both forms of animal consciousness that we need to bring into balance so we can access the frontal neocortex and promote a state of growth in homeostasis. This left brain prison is the tendency to get trapped in this existential worldview and only engage in things that we can see or, or detect with our five senses. So, you know, in ancient Greece, while Aristotle essentially championed reliance on the five senses. Plato and, and Socrates basically felt that the five senses were the deceiver and that we needed to learn and try to connect with more of the unseen forces that were at work in this world. And that was always what the purpose of mythology and the idea of gods and how the idea of mythological heroes and the idea of gods were used to understand and express unseen forces. So when we're talking about the Egyptian mythos, we're talking about a civilization, a lasting civilization that had mastered and perfected this mythology. And that once that civilization did collapse, that the great civilizations that came in its wake were unable to understand fully what the Egyptians were doing and what they had accomplished. And that only in the modern world are we really able to fully understand what they were endeavoring to do. And that scholars have perpetuated the dogma all the way into the modern world that they took from the Hebrews or that they took from the Greeks who never understood the Egyptians. In ego identification, we tend to identify with the labels. And the labels are just simply fragments of consciousness, just, you know, an experience that we're having in this time-space continuum. So that's not who we are. That's not who we truly are. We're so much more than that. We don't want to get trapped in that ego identification because that leads us astray from truth. And this left brain prison is rooting us in empiricism, in empirical science, where in order for something to be objective, there has to be an object. So these things are all related the way that they work. We're really going to have to really learn to understand this triune brain model with this left brain, right brain paradigm that we're discussing here. Most people, I think, are aware that in the physical world we are in duality but they tend to think that evil is a polarity of that which is good and that gives us the idea that evil is inherent in nature and i'm trying to point out that evil comes from human beings or the failure of human beings it's not necessarily inherent in nature there's not an equal amount of evil that exists in the world to counterbalance the equal amount of good. As we've said, the Egyptians described ignorance as the only real, true evil. So when we're talking about ignorance, we're making the case that it's an act of sheer will. But what does that mean? It means that we can't really know everything that there is to know in a mortal lifetime or we can't learn everything that there is to learn and know in a mortal lifetime so that we have to use our judgment and discernment to understand that which is most important and understand that there's certain things in this world that we cannot afford to ignore which primarily means anything that destroys freedom we have to be aware of the psychology that leads to the loss of freedom. We have to flesh out the psychology that leads us to accept dogma and refuse truth. So a lot of what we're doing here at the cubbyhole is about that and how these belief systems become entrenched in the psyche and, and we put up resistance to truth and, and dig our heels in in our dogma and, and take this recalcitrant stance to resist 
truth and ready to defend erroneous axioms and ideals even to the grave or to the death. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have maybe graduated from the political theater or graduated from the idea that government is truly benevolent and trying to make man free. And, well, a lot of people have looked into alternative research or alternative media to try to get answers from somewhere besides the mainstream narrative, which means they're questioning the official narrative or they're beginning to question authority. And that's always healthy. However, uh, a lot of people probably uh, tend to want to engage in the rhetoric before they've fully completed their grammar stage. And we have to keep in mind that, that one of the techniques to obscure truth is to turn up the noise around it. So if we are just compounding rhetorical jargon, ultimately that can be used as noise to squelch truth. We really need to know what we're talking about and we need to try to avoid getting it into the rhetorical phase. There's nothing new under the sun, however. That just means that the truth has always been here, always will be here. So we're not really bringing anything new. We're trying to rearrange our priorities, get our priorities in order here. And the only way we can really do that is to understand what has true value in this world. So left brain prison is part of the Western idealism. It's encouraged in our education system. It's part of the indoctrination program to get us rooted in this left brain prison because that keeps us focused only on the physical world and leaves us at the mercy of the authorities, quote unquote. The idea that we, you know, somebody can represent us and that we can live in a world of proxy, which is not true. We cannot afford to live in a world of proxies and, and, can't truly have representation, representation. An individual that represents our common interests across the board. If we look at our political paradigm in this country, it's in total disarray. I mean, the country is more divided now than it ever has been on every single front to the point where they're even creating new things that they can divide us on new issues that they can divide us on. So we have to keep in mind that we need to find our common ground. And really where the common ground is, is understanding that our freedom is inextricably connected. So if anybody is really going astray from truth, then the behaviors that they're taking in this world will compromise freedom in the aggregate for all of us. So each individual has an individual responsibility to truth for the sake of freedom. Because without freedom, we have nothing. And it's all of our responsibility to ensure that we're doing everything we can to preserve freedom for the sake of progeny and posterity. So this idea that evil is inherent in this world is a fallacy. Evil comes from men. The Joseph Conrad quote, the belief in a supernatural source of evil is not necessary. Men are quite capable of every wickedness. So we have to get rid of this idea that evil exists inherent in nature. Basically, evil is could be defined as resistance to truth or that which destroys freedom. Because resistance to truth is that which destroys freedom. And it's related to understanding the natural law. As morality declines, freedom declines. As morality increases, freedom increases. And that's our responsibility. And yes, evil can win. So it's not that evil is a, is a necessary balance for good in the world. It's that everything in creation that's not man-made is God's creation. And everything that's in creation that is man-made is an extension of God's creation. So we have free will, and with that free will comes responsibility to truth because we can't accidentally do the right thing. 
We can't give something that we don't have. And we can't have something that we don't earn. And we can't change the immutable conditions that are woven into the fabric of the physical realm and the spiritual realm. The best that we can do is discover the laws that exist in this realm and learn to harmonize and align ourselves to it. So this idea of the lesser of two evils and this political dialectic, this polarization dialectic we know as politics is the illusion of choice because, you know, freedom ultimately is about having choices. Well, if you only have two choices, that's no choice at all. You know, so freedom is about having choices, but freedom is also responsibility to truth because ultimately, yeah, we have free will and we can create whatever we want here. We can build a paradise or we can build a prison, but ultimately our free will only really serves us to be able to discover the laws that exist in nature and learn to live in harmony with them. This is why prudence is so important. We have to have prudence to discover the natural law. So without prudence, we have no way to discover the natural law. And that's why they want to make certain personal choices against the law. Because that way we cannot engage in prudence and discover the natural laws for ourselves that are inherent to nature. So we have to be able to distinguish prudence from morality. And this idea of the lesser of two evils is still evil. So we're not learning the lesson if we're ascribing to this idea of the lesser of two evils. And there's a lot to it. What, you know, how we arrive at, at that type of a, an idea. The idea of that government is a necessary evil. It's not a necessary evil because no evil is necessary. Evil is only necessary for somebody who's in fear wanting to control. And that's not something that benefits us as a species. Therefore, it is not necessary. Evil can be considered to be necessary in the sense that it helps us to discern that which is good. But the point is, we don't have to live with it. The point is, if we learn to understand it, that we can live and not have to engage it. We need to understand that the whole system is set up under the premise of the idea that's based on better the devil that you know. So I want to try to explain that a little bit. The idea of better the devil you know. A good example of that is in the movie The Da Vinci Code. Because you have a conspiracy that is created within the church, in the institution, that only a qualified member of the church is qualified to solve. And it sets off this horrific series of events. And then they bring in their own investigator to solve a crime within the institution of the church that was created by the institution of the church. So this is the idea of the better the devil that you know. The idea that if you didn't have the church to combat the evil that they created, then there wouldn't be anybody that could deal with the threat or deal, yeah, that could deal with the threat or the danger. Government operates in much the same way. It creates problems and then scripts itself to be the heroes that have the solutions to the problems that they created. So the whole idea is the better the devil that you know. And what I'm trying to tell you is that you can't play patty cake with the devil. That the devil doesn't have anything that you want or that does truly serve us as a species. So we have to get past this idea of the lesser of two evils and we have to get past this idea of the better the devil that you know. The idea is to learn the nature of the self and then learn to live above the lower aspects of the self and find true value in the things that truly matter in this world and let our endeavors be focused on preserving that for progeny and posterity. The five sense illusion, we can understand 
you know, the point I wanted to make about the five sense illusion is that it's directly related to what we were talking about, this idea of Westing. It's, you know, going in the direction of materialism, which takes us away from source, away from the light, away from the truth. The idea that the sun rises in the east and the sun sets and goes into the underworld in the west. And then the, the chasing of the sun into the west is the chasing the allure of gold and the golden rays of the sun. It's where we get the idea of chasing the lost city of gold and the allegory of the lost city of El Dorado. We want to be aware of this idea of this better the devil that you know and understand it's an illusion that we can't live in a proxy world and nobody else can represent our best interest in the sense that they everybody has different ideas about what they want this world to be or what they want out of this world. So we have to really understand that there is a tremendous responsibility because these ideas, the idea of freedom is fleeting and then all of these other ideas are compounding to obscure what is necessary to attain freedom. And that freedom is basically unfamiliar to us throughout our classical history. While the American Revolution does definitely represent a benevolent attempt to resist tyranny, we can see that the doctrines that came out of that were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And quite frankly, the Declaration of Independence was a more perfect document than the Constitution because once you give man the power to tax, you've given away a right to a group of people that you don't have to give and that you don't have in the first place. So understand how that works and how that's related to this pursuit of materialism over spiritual purpose. And when we talk about spiritual, we're talking about the endeavor to preserve freedom in this world and understand the things that seek to destroy freedom and create the spiritual armor to resist the things that destroy freedom. So this institutionalized belief, it's a dangerous proposition because institutions can become corrupted. And this dynamic of groupthink, this herd mentality, the idea that the individual consciousness is affected by the aggregate consciousness, which is true. Yes, if you have a more enlightened, a more mentally developed human being, and then you put them in a group that has a lower conscious frequency in the aggregate, it will affect the being that is resonating at a higher frequency. The physical is always reaching up to pull the spiritual down while the spiritual is reaching down to pull the physical up. So I want to keep that in mind and understand that's part of our responsibility. You know, they, this idea of the ultimate sin, you know, they would have you believe that the ultimate sin was some lewd sex act. And I just wanted to say the ultimate sin is believing in government or believing in socialism or believing in man's law. Because in order to believe in man's law and then the act of setting up man's law in the form of an institutionalized system, that is the ultimate sin because in order to set up and establish man's law, you have to overthrow the laws of creation, which is the same as overthrowing the creator itself or overthrowing God. So I would tell you that was what the ultimate sin. And the word sin is an archer's term. It simply just means to miss the mark. That's what the 666 represents, failure in our expressions of consciousness, the trinity of the thoughts, the emotions, and the actions. The 666 represents failure in all three of those things. So it represents basically an extinction event. It's something that is our responsibility to prevent from happening to us as a species. So this institutionalized belief, the problem with that is that an institution operates much like the ego. It seeks to, you know, self-preservation becomes its highest directive. So, therefore, everything that may be antithetic to morality or antithetic to truth becomes justified. The end is justified, or the means is justified by the end, 
which is self-preservation of the institution. And then this group think dynamic is dangerous proposition. We have to remember that democracy ultimately is mob rule. That means rule by the most ignorant. So in that respect, all these ideas for government systems are flawed in some way. And we can talk a little bit about what those are, which I did want to get into a little bit. In the classical sense or in the traditional sense or in the political sense, these terms communism and socialism are closely related. And I think most people that are studying in the political science arena would be able to give you or would agree with the definition that I'm about to give for these two terms. But when I use the term socialism, I mean all forms of coercive government, unless I say otherwise. But anytime we're using these terms, we're going to try to endeavor to make the distinction and clarify what we're discussing or what we're actually saying. But the main way that we can understand these ideologies in the modern world and distinguish what we think of as communism from socialism is that typically socialism implies control of all production. So whatever is produced is centrally controlled what you might call government property, under the guise that the government would distribute that property equally among the population, which I shouldn't have to tell us is a fallacy. Because if government's primary directive is self-preservation, then it's in its best interest to create an artificial scarcity, manufactured lack, because it's the lack or the fear of lack that's going to create the demand for the institution known as government to continue to exist. So we have to understand that. And this idea of socialism, as I said in the traditional sense or the classical sense, refers to centralized control of all production or that which is produced. And that can be distinguished from communism, which can be defined as centralized control of all production and all means of production. So basically that means that the individual can't really own anything and that everything is property of the state. And I think that that's how most people distinguish those two ideologies from one another. But ideally, I think most people would agree that socialism is communism light and they associate it with a leftist ideology in the political sense. And they also tend to think that conservatism or capitalism is the only solution to communism. You know, if you're reading J. Edgar Hoover's book, The Master of Deceit, you know, you might get the impression that, hey, this is, you know, this sounds anti-authoritarian, anti, almost anti-government. It sounds benevolent. And in a sense, it is benevolent because it is a very real danger. And the Soviet-Russian communism that emerged in the 20th century was the most extreme form of this mental disease we call communism that we've ever seen as a human species so, or as a species. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But I just wanted to say that capitalism ideally can only accelerate the wealth gap between the classes and that therefore could only expedite socialism, which would expedite communism, and that we've never experienced anything, any such thing as laissez-faire capitalism, because we've always had centralized control of resources. And there's a lot to understanding Bolshevism. And, you know, one of the things we have to remember about Bolshevism is that it was the end of a dynastic monarchy. It constituted the toppling of a dynastic monarchy. But, you know, if we study World War I enough, we will arrive at the fact that it was, in fact, a sibling rivalry because all of the major players in that were direct heirs of Victoria. So you had Wilhelm II and Nicholas II and Edward V and Nicholas II practically looking like identical twins. If you put them side by side, you wouldn't be able to tell one from the other. But it was basically a sibling rivalry because they all were direct descendants of Victoria. And this phenomenon known as balkanization is really what it was about. You know, it was about Germany wanting a bigger piece of the pie or more milk in its glass. 
And then the Western forces or the Western allies took the momentum of that and basically used it to further balkanize Europe and bring it under Western control. So in order to understand World War II, we can't do that really without understanding World War I. We can't understand why Germany had become so disgruntled without understanding the wake of World War I, the Weimar Republic, and the fear of Bolshevism. Understand that coming out of the First World War in the 20th century that gave rise to what we know as the First Red Scare, which was the fear of the spread of communism. And that basically the armistice became basically a halftime program for World War II. And that World War II was a continuation of World War I. And these things are very hard to understand. We have to appreciate that. We have scholars that have studied these subjects for much of their life and devoted much of their life to the study of these subjects and still don't have all the answers. So we have to understand why that is. We have to get down to the root causal problems. You know, and this idea of conservatism is associated with the rightist ideology. And I want to make it clear that ideally conservatism implies orthodox. It means by the book. So the question becomes, well, which book are we supposed to be following verbatim? Orthodox. In our case, that's supposed to be the Constitution. But see, the Constitution has undergone revisionism since its inception. And while it does endeavor to function as a republic and enshrine certain inalienable rights because the language becomes ambiguous and degrades over time, then we experience a phenomenon known as revisionism or reinterpretation, which comes from the ideal of liberalism, which is basically the opposite of conservatism, which is orthodox. The idea of liberalism is open to interpretation or open to the idea that things can be reinterpreted or retranslated. And that leads to this revisionism. So when we're looking at, you know, from the time of the inception of the Declaration of Independence to the forming of the Constitution, and then the 200 plus years all the way up to the present day, and how much freedom has been compromised and how much suffering has been caused in that time period. Basically, one thing we want to say to ourselves or or try to understand is that everything that's happened in the wake of the creating of these documents or these charters basically defines by precedent what the language was actually supposed to mean. And everything in our modern system of law is defined by case law, which sets the precedent and then the case goes into the courts and then the ruling consensus basically sets the precedent for what the law can be interpreted to mean. There's a lot of things we have to understand about that. I'm not going to fully break down all of these ideologies, but we're going to start talking about them and try to further flesh them out. You know, one of the things I would tell you is that if we're talking about the Civil War, we absolutely have no way of understanding what that's about if we can't distinguish between feudalism and manorialism. Because basically what it was was before the Union had total control a large portion of this country was operating under manorialism, which means everything that the manor produced or needed was produced on the manor by the manor. So they were basically self-sufficient. And what we call or refer to as slaves, in many cases, could be referred to as employees of the manor. And then their treatment would be determined by what type of a landlord that they actually have. But the point is, is that When the Union actually, or the Emancipation Act was actually instated, that a lot of people lost their livelihood. Because what the idea was, was to take thousands of independent manors and bring them under a centralized control. So what they wanted to do was get rid of the manors and then establish feudalism in 50 feudal territories. So rather than having thousands of landlords dictating company policy, they wanted to have 50 feudal territories with 50 landlords that they could control under centralized authority. Not sure a lot of people fully understand that. My point is we cannot understand what we think of as, you know, African slavery or chattel slavery during the Civil War and colonialization period unless we understand manorialism.
and you know the term slavery is an ambiguous term but basically i want to define it as anything that destroys freedom so it definitely corresponds to evil and this idea you know this first red scare ultimately that created a lot of fervor to engage in more world conflict and ultimately leading up to the second world war and then coming out of the second world war was very controversial and that led to a phenomenon known as mccarthyism well this mccarthyism was simply what we can call the second red scare and it was basically a result of what happened to Patton when Patton basically marched his troops all the way to the outskirts of Berlin and then was relieved of the command of the Third Army. And Zhukov of the Russian forces was allowed to take the Russian forces into Berlin before the Americans, and that created a tremendous controversy. And then the Senator Joseph McCarthy basically began stirring things up in the echelons of the Congress and and the United States government about this second Red Scare. So the way the Second World War ended was very controversial, and that did lead to the Second Red Scare, which led to this phenomenon known as McCarthyism. So one of the points I want to make about it is that this McCarthyism is basically the term that we used to have for the idea of a conspiracy theory. So the term McCarthyism ultimately was replaced in 1969 by this term conspiracy theory. And the whole idea of the conspiracy theory is to marginalize independent journalism or marginalize independent researchers because there is such a thing as conspiracy fact. And if we start etymologically breaking down these terms, conspiracy simply means to breathe together. So it's going to be hard to convince anybody that there's never been an event in history where people were breathing together. So... Main thing we want to understand is the idea of conspiracy theory is to stigmatize or marginalize anybody that questions the official narrative or questions authority. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with JFK, but, you know, everything that happened in the 20th century, quite frankly. We have to understand how we want to euphemize words, like when Edward Bernays became the propagandist for the United States, the first thing he did was change the Department of the War to the Department of Defense. And this idea of post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, that used to be called shell shock. So, you know, why did we want to euphemize that so we can feel better about it? You know, government is a euphemism for slavery. So we have to stop euphemizing these things and understand what they really are and represent at their face value. So I'm going to give you an Albert Churchward quote right here. He says, A great error is often committed on account of the disguise and false colors in which many things appear when presented to us in an imperfect state. I have seen thousands of things which are not in reality what they appear to be, and that both in the moral and natural world, Canavery puts on the face of justice, hypocrisy, and superstition, where the vizard of piety, deceit, and evil are often clothed in the shapes and appearances of truth and goodness. Albert Churchward. So, the things which truly do not serve us as a species or are antithetic to our species are elusive to us, and they disguise themselves and their counterpart, and their benevolent counterpart. So we have to learn to recognize and learn to see through the vizard of piety and understand that ignorance is the only evil and that only by extracting ourselves from that condition, which is an act of sheer will, are we going to develop the lens that we actually need to identify and recognize evil in our midst. So when we're talking about things like ritual sacrifice and, and, you know, devil worship or Satanism and things of this nature, we really need to have a more mature perspective on these things. You know, for instance, we want to make a distinction, I would say, between Satanism and devil worship, because the idea of devil worship is basically used to marginalize or obscure what Satanism really is. So I think one thing is not the same as the other, or Luciferianism is an ambiguous term. 
because Luciferian, you know, with the word Lucifer, which is simply Lux Ferrae, the carrier of the light, is associated with evil now. So we have to understand how Lucifer became associated with the idea of the Christian archetypal devil, when in fact, in its etymological origin, means something totally antithetic, the carrier of the light, the bringer of the light. So we don't want to get hung up on the word, you know, we don't want to get hung up on the label or the terminology, but we do want to be able to make distinctions between these things. So the idea of devil worship is more in line with what most people think when they hear the word Satanism. And I would tell you that Satanism is simply a form of cognitive dissonance and that the actual tenets of Satanism actually define a condition in which most people are actually living their lives today, which is ideally selfishness. So in this ego identification, the ego wants to set up as executor of the being, and then self-preservation of the physical body becomes its highest directive. And the other tenets of what we can call Satanism, which really is ultimately just cognitive dissonance, or moral relativism, the idea that morality is subjective or relative to our personal whims and desires. Therefore, we are the arbitrator of truth or that which is good or that which is evil. It's a God complex, ultimately. Or um, social Darwinism, you know, the idea of survival of the fittest, which is ultimately just survival of the most ruthless which means the most psychopathic among us is the cream that would rise to the top of that systemic paradigm. And ultimately, eugenics, you know, the idea that man gets to decide who lives and who dies or who should procreate or what genes gets passed forward and what genes get sterilized and removed from the gene pool. It's a God complex. And I would tell you basically than anybody that's trapped in this dialectical materialism or this socialist mindset that coercive government is a necessary evil is a eugenicist, which means they have a God complex. They believe they are the arbiters of truth simply by embracing moral relativism. To embrace moral relativism means that you believe that man is the arbiter of truth or that you individually are the arbiter of truth. And it's a mental disease. You know, I like to say that money and government are constructs that only exist in the diseased mind. And it's true. There's no such thing as a necessary evil. One of the things I want to say is... Um, regarding the idea of magic and sorcery. There's going to be a lot more that we need to open up to really understand all this, which we're not going to do today, but I just want to mention it here so we can at least have it on the table for future discussions. Basically, just the idea of the ruling class, its modus operandi basically is related to a fertility ritual in the sense that they have crops, and then they seek to fertilize those crops. So basically, they are shareholders. And then what they do is they try to manipulate the environment, which you can consider the soil, to promote a bountiful harvest. So when we're talking about mind control, we're talking about social engineering and propaganda. And they're using social engineering and propaganda in which dark or psychology is applied in general to manipulate us in certain ways that we don't understand and manipulate our behaviors to get us to behave certain ways that they want us to behave, which can be considered the fertilizing of the soil to help grow their crops, which are their investments. So when we're talking about ritualistic magic and ritualistic sorcery and how these are based on fertility rights, this is why. So it's very important to understand the fertility rights in pure forms so we can understand them in corrupted forms and ultimately understand that dogmatic religion is born out of the ignorance of understanding pure forms of fertility rights. We have to keep in mind that the idea of the fertility cycle is also related to the fertility cycle of human existence. Therefore, failed crops equates to extinction or infertility equates to extinction. So if we're talking about ritual magic or chaos, sorcery, and things like that, 
and social engineering, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about farmers, what we can call shareholders, have planted their crops, what we can call their investments, and are manipulating the environment, what we can call the soil, to try to ensure a bountiful harvest. And that's important to understand. So when we're fleshing out these sacrificial rituals and things like that, we can understand the relevance of how that comes into the modern world. And I want to give you another church word quote right here. Church word says, as for politics, what antics do some creatures calling themselves men descend to for party reasons? The grandest of all the divine creator's works, man, has been degenerated into the basest of animals. Many, a disgrace to humanity, have no thoughts of the hereafter or no real wish for the advancement of their fellow creatures. What they profess is one thing, but what their actions denote is something totally antithetic. And um, I brought along another Churchwood quote here, so I'm going to go ahead and just read that to you now. Recently, ethics has been preached and written by men who have not the slightest idea of the harm they are doing to their fellow creatures in their country. They cannot have any real knowledge of the past history and evolution of the human race or the cause of the rise and fall of all great nations of the past or from whence originated the doctrines they believe in or profess to believe in. Many fallacies are still written and preached by some of our professors and great divines as truths, whereas the truth is entirely different. I therefore hope that my work may awaken and teach them before it is too late, and that the human race may not be sent back to the dark, degenerate age from which we have just emerged, Albert Churchward. So that's very profound, and he's definitely implying that the knowledge that we have and that we're going to need to sustain ourselves as a species is always in danger of being lost or being compartmentalized to the point where it's no longer accessible to us. So that's about all I brought for today's show. I hope you found value in the information presented here today, and thank you for listening. Please visit our website at cubbyhole.com. That's C-U-B-B-Y-W-H-O-L-E dot com. And keep transcending dogma. <laughs>